So to break this down for for myself and for the listeners, mm-hmm. you're coming up with a way to monetize the avoidance of catastrophic events. You got it. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancox and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is your host, Mike Hancox, and joining me is my co-host, Vernice Miller-Travis. Our guest today is Shalini Vajala. Shalini has a PhD in engineering and public policy from Carnegie Mellon University, which tells you she's way smarter than I am. Shalini previously worked for Resources for the Future and held multiple positions in the Obama administration, including serving as special representative in the office of Administrator Lisa Jackson at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. She is currently the founder and CEO of Refocus, which according to their website... We are social entrepreneurs with expertise in public policy and sustainable development. We design integrated, resilient infrastructure systems, including water, waste, and energy projects, and develop new public-private partnerships to align public funds and leverage private investment for vulnerable communities around the world. Shalini, welcome. It's so great to have you here today. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Bernice. Great to be here. So let's dig in. We're always fascinated by how people, particularly innovators and change makers, end up doing what they're doing. Can you share with us the moment when the idea of refocus came into existence for you? Sure. So it was sort of an unexpected trajectory for me, Bernice. I started out my career as an architect and was practicing in the city of Pittsburgh, got pulled into some fascinating work studying megacities and how you design and site and build large infrastructure. When, for example, if you're making a large investment in railways, what do you do if you have to pick up and move 30,000 people who are living in slum communities along that railway? So my work kind of shifted sideways into community mapping and some fascinating work on energy and water infrastructure siting. And I got a very unexpected call in 2008 after the election to join the Obama administration and was entirely flattered and went to work for a few months at the White House in the Council on Environmental Quality, and then got pulled into the Environmental Protection Agency to help lead the International and Tribal Affairs Program. So my work has taken a number of really interesting turns over the last few years, most of which look much more coherent in hindsight than I could have ever planned them out to be. But the common thread is actually working with communities on designing both policy systems and actual infrastructure services for the most vulnerable. Excellent. And so you just, you thought that there needed to be a space and there wasn't a space where these pieces were being brought together. Yeah, and my work in the administration with Lisa Jackson and her team ended up evolving from doing work on basic city 
environmental issues. How do you provide clean water? How do you make sure there's clean air, protect children's environmental health? And what we realized is a lot of environmental mandates are really difficult to comply with for cities that are really trying to do the right thing. So take, for example, a city like Philadelphia that was dealing with a failing stormwater system, the systems that are designed to manage sewers and storm flows. And Philly did something really creative. They actually announced that they were going to try to move to 100% green infrastructure. So I want you to picture taking a city like Philadelphia and turning it from a funnel where all the water falls on the city in a rainstorm and gets rushed out underneath it and taking and turning that into a sponge. So instead of building a few large pieces and parts, you're basically putting in tens of thousands of street trees and repaving your roads to absorb water. And we ended up working on all these really interesting projects where it looks a lot more like a city trying to do an Olympics than a city trying to build the systems that they knew they had to protect the environment. And so Refocus was really born out of trying to build a new approach for how governments could work with the private sector, with new investors, and with communities directly to provide safer and better services over time. So Mike has already given us a little blurb earlier, but can you give our audience a better idea of what Refocus is and the work that you all take on? Sure. So Refocus is a, we are a small social business. We uh, have a benefit corporation certification, a B Corp. And what we do is we work directly with governments, with philanthropies, with communities to solve infrastructure problems. So our work is very unusual. We are not typical consultants, and we're also not uh, direct investors in our own projects. What we do is we catch communities in a stage of infrastructure design called pre-development. So before you know exactly what you need to build or what problem you're trying to solve, how can you get a team together that includes engineers, lawyers, investors, and really great designers to work with communities? to come up with something you might not have built otherwise, like that sponge instead of the typical funnel for your water system. So to give an example, we might work with a city to finance upgrades to a water system based on energy savings, because the less leaky your water system is, the more you're going to save in your energy bills. And so we look for really unusual projects and ways to pay for large infrastructure that don't typically happen for any single business or government agency. Can you give us an example? Like, do you have a favorite project or a project that you think was particularly innovative or successful? Yeah, we, have, we do have one favorite. So um, the city of Hoboken was one that we worked with early on through a competition we actually designed called the Reinvest Initiative. And Hoboken was one of eight cities across the U.S. that we selected. And they were, for folks who aren't familiar with the city, it's actually much smaller than you might think. It is right across the river from New York City, and it's exactly one square mile. And most of the city is paved and it's shaped like a bowl. So during Hurricane Sandy, they had about 12 feet of standing water in there, and many parts of the community, especially some areas with high populations of elderly residents, lost power for two weeks after the hurricane. So you can imagine how devastating this was. Mayor Don Zimmer has been absolutely fabulous since Sandy about trying to really invest proactively in how to protect her city and protect local residents from the next storm. 
So we got to work with Hoboken on a really interesting project to try to deal with flooding in this little bowl-shaped city. And what we ended up doing is working with the city to try to combine other priorities in to their flood plans. And so we asked them, what else do you really need here? And the design we ended up with was a layer cake of infrastructure that combined an underground bathtub, picture a really large storage chamber, to hold overflows from the sewer system. On top of that underground, you could have up to three layers of parking, kind of a standard underground parking garage. But what we did is we designed the garage so that it could flood from the bottom up. So now you end up with an almost 40 million gallon bathtub to protect all these surrounding properties in the city of Hoboken. And on the surface, you can put in playing fields and recreational spaces and build them with green infrastructure so you have a little sponge on top to help with those one- and two-year rainstorms that cause flooding in local streets. So the layer cake one is, is one of our favorite projects, and kudos to Hoboken for being really creative about thinking bigger to solve a big problem rather than trying to narrow in and grab a small slice. So has that project actually been built, and how was that financed? The project is in its very earliest stages. We did the initial design work, and our work with the city ended when we, we helped them get the initial phase of financing through something called the New Jersey Environmental Infrastructure Trust, which is a revolving loan fund. Who manages that fund? It's actually a state organization. The fund itself gets its resources from uh, EPA's drinking water and clean water revolving loan funds. Okay. So it's a statewide distribution competitive process. And what's exciting about the Hoboken project is the city is moving forward to acquire the land and go forward through the first phases of permitting and design now. But what we really liked about this project is that because it combines an underground parking garage with flood systems, you have a way that parking can help subsidize something that's hard to pay for. And so it's trying to find ways to combine those revenue-generating systems with things that may not generate direct revenue, but create huge savings in the long term. It sounds like it's an incredibly innovative project, right? Both from a physical design point, the fact that you're creating this thing that you can use all the time, the parking garage that can serve that function of stormwater management in a crisis moment. And then the fact that you can pay for that from multiple sources is fantastic. Yeah, and that's our goal with every project, is to try to put strange bedfellows together so that you can make sure to design bigger and zoom out and more cost-effectively solve two problems than you could solve either one alone. One of the programs on your website, one of the things you work on is a program called Rebound, mm -hmm. which is focused on catastrophe funding and how to use that for better infrastructure. I'll, I'll let you explain that better. But my question is, is are the majority of your projects in these kind of post-catastrophe situations? No, not often. Um, we tend to have a lot of different projects that are driven by our clients and our partners' interests. So we often get phone calls from folks who say, who don't know exactly what they want to do, but know they need to do something. And after a disaster is a very obvious point where you obviously have to do something. You can't go back to where you were. Or a lot of times communities don't want to build back what they had. They want to build better, which is a really positive thing. 
But sometimes we'll get really proactive folks who will come and say, you know, we know we're in bad shape. We've got a rising sea level or an eroding coastline. Can you help us get ahead of the next disaster? So it's not necessarily that we're disaster focused or driven. It just so happens that a lot of the work we do creates benefits that aren't just about direct revenues, like building a toll road and collecting tolls. We design things that create future benefits as well. So for example, saving energy in your water system. And so we tend to see people come to us with very different types of projects. But to go back to your question, Mike, on on the rebound program, this was a program that actually evolved in part out of the Hoboken project that I mentioned, which is we realized that by protecting a city like Hoboken from flooding, you're creating all of these benefits that aren't being captured by the project itself, right? So when you build a really thoughtful bathtub, (laughs) ideally the hospital nearby doesn't flood and all the surrounding properties' basements don't flood. So who saves money when you build that kind of project? Well, in one case, it turns out it's actually insurance companies benefit quite a bit because they don't have to pay out huge claims if the damages don't happen or if there are fewer damages. And so what we started doing was looking for ways that we could work with insurance companies and investment banks to actually formally forecast and capture those savings. The same way you would if you were making energy efficiency improvements to your house, for example. You would know that if you changed out these light bulbs or if you weatherized your home, here's how much your bill could go down. There's no equivalent, really, for the insurance industry. And so what we started doing through the rebound program last year was working with partners around the world to take some of the infrastructure projects we had designed in cities like Hoboken and Norfolk, Virginia, to test and see whether we could actually measure the benefits to insurance companies of cities investing in this type of infrastructure, and then capture that in the form of a rebate that cities could use to pay for the project the same way that you would do financing for a solar installation on your roof or for energy efficiency in your home. And so Rebound was an innovative experiment last year to see if we could actually design a new financial instrument. And the instrument that we focused on was something called a catastrophe bond. So catastrophe bonds are, I want you to think about them more like an insurance policy than a bond. So don't compare it to a municipal bond. Think about it more like a life insurance policy. What a catastrophe bond is, is a life insurance policy for an insurance company or anyone who holds a really large number of assets that could get hit by a disaster. And what makes these bonds different is that they're specifically set up to anticipate a specific disaster. So if you have a catastrophe bond to protect you from a hurricane, if a hurricane hits and it hits at a certain level, so you reach a certain wind speed or it causes a certain amount of damage that you predict in advance, then that entire bond goes to whoever holds the policy and cashes out just like a life insurance policy, so you have the money to recover and rebuild. And what makes these really interesting is that if you are building systems like the bathtub, like seawalls, like mangroves and coastal protections you're actually changing the likelihood that one of these bonds would pay out. So we tend to use the analogy a lot, that it looks a lot like a life insurance policy, where if you quit smoking 
your rates go down. But there's nothing that helps cities see that equivalent discount. And so what we did through Rebound is actually take a standard catastrophe bond, test it against different types of infrastructure projects, look for where you could create savings, and then find a way to capture those savings in the form of a rebate, the same way that you would get a discount for being healthier in your life insurance pool. Make sense? It makes a lot of sense. Have you successfully, is there one of these in place somewhere? It's a new type of financial instrument. We just tested and validated the whole structure last year. And we're in the process of working with a number of cities and utilities and large asset holders now to design the first bond. So the first one hasn't been issued, but just to calibrate you, the catastrophe bond market is about $24 billion as of the beginning of this year. So it's a fairly sizable pool of insurance funds and companies that are interested in this market. And they're especially interested if they can find a way to manage their likelihood of losses. And so we've seen an enormous amount of interest. And we hope to get the first one of these out there in the next year or so. So to break this down for myself and for the listeners, Mm -hmm. you're coming up with a way to monetize the avoidance of catastrophic events. You got it. So let's say, let's use this parking garage in Hoboken as an example. I'm the city of Hoboken. I want to build this water retention parking garage. How does the money actually flow to them? And where is it flowing from to finance that project? If they had one of these catastrophe bond programs that you're talking about. Perfect. So it's exactly the right question. The way we think about most infrastructure projects now is that they are either publicly financed because they create a broad public benefit or they generate revenues like the parking garage and they're paid for through the revenues they generate. A resilience bond is one additional financing mechanism and it really just depends on how big the benefit is that the project provides. So we'd have to look at the area protected by this flood protection understand who is likely to lose less money, total all of that up, and then scale the bond based on that. And where the money would flow from, you can anticipate having some money for the project already. And this rebate would come back in the form of a discount on your insurance. So all of these projects, when you build large infrastructure projects, typically require a city, a utility to hold an insurance policy or a city or a utility already has an insurance policy. And the same way that your electricity bill would see a discount, if you weatherize your home, you would see a discount on your insurance policy that can be redirected back to the project. So I assume like in this Hoboken case, there are a lot of buildings around where there are insurance policies with different insurers. Mm -hmm. And those are the folks who are going to benefit. Correct. So how do you... On the simplest level, if I make a payment to my insurance company of $1,000, yep. are they then giving you the rebate or am I paying? How, how is that transaction actually working? So this is an important distinction. A catastrophe bond is something that works at the level of reinsurance. So it's insurance industry companies protecting themselves, not at the level of a homeowner who has a homeowner's insurance policy. So zoom out one step And picture your insurance pool being the one, your insurance company is the one that's seeing this benefit, not necessarily you directly on your homeowner's insurance. 
the way that we would think about setting this up, the best analogy is I want you to think about a condo where you have a homeowners association, where if you have some really large insurers or properties, they're like the penthouse in a condominium. If you have some smaller ones, it could be like a studio apartment. And each one has an existing homeowners association fee. And so you picture as you have a project that protects each of them that could reduce their fees, it could be based on their total protection. So for example, if they are closer to a seawall or to a flood protection, and they're likely to be more highly protected, they would see a bigger discount. Or it could be based on just how much of the condo they own. And so there are a lot of different ways to set it up, but that homeowners association model and fee is, is a good way to think about how you pull together a lot of different folks and insurance portfolios that would benefit from the same project. Got it. So the, the funds are coming from the reinsurers. They would be coming from whoever is the beneficiary of a project. So it could be, for example, an electric utility or a water utility that has a high insurance bill every year and you're reducing their bill. So they could be a direct participant. It could be an insurance company that's a direct participant. If, for example, there's one insurer that's holding all of the policies for a neighborhood or a hotel in a given area, it really depends on the project and the community. And so these things have to be designed in concert with the infrastructure project itself. They're not like a mortgage where you just go out and get a standard issue one. You actually really have to pay attention to how a project is protecting a local community and who's protected. It makes, it makes a ton of sense. How receptive has the insurance industry been or supportive of this? They've been enormously interested and supportive. So we've been lucky to work with several different partners through the Rebound program, including Goldman Sachs, Swiss Re, which is one of the biggest global reinsurance firms, and a fantastic catastrophe modeling firm that does a lot of the detailed analysis out of London called RMS. And you can see a little bit about each of them in the Rebound report that's on our website. But we've gotten nothing but positive interest from the insurance industry because they recognize that cities and communities are growing increasingly exposed to risks that they aren't prepared for. So if you look at the heartbreaking pictures out of Louisiana this week, you see that a heavy rainstorm isn't what it used to be. And insurers are more aware of that than almost everyone else. And they're looking for ways to help communities protect themselves. So we've actually heard from insurers that this kind of work is a little bit like what they did a hundred years ago when they were dealing with fires in cities. It was actually the insurance industry that really advocated hard for good fire building codes to protect residents because they couldn't keep issuing policies where the costs were going to go up and up and up. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. But overall, the response has been enormously positive and also very creative in how they're trying to solve this problem. So can you tell us how this work specifically impacts low-income communities? And your Louisiana example is a great one because we know that there are still thousands and thousands and thousands of folks who were not able to 
go back home to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina because they didn't have the resources or were underinsured or not insured at all. Mm -hmm. And so they were really never able to go back. And there was a huge loss of black wealth, even though the Lower Ninth Ward was a working class, low income community. It had one of the highest homeowner rates of any community in New Orleans. So it just a tremendous amount of wealth and equity was wiped out. And being underinsured, they weren't able to reestablish that equity that they had built up over decades. Yeah, Vernice, it's one of the things that is most important to us as we think about designing these financing strategies is how do you make sure that they work for everyone and not just for the wealthiest folks who may be able to pay for these kinds of policies. And what we've found that's most important in our work is being able to follow the money and figure out who's losing money at the end of the day. Because when you look at New Orleans after Katrina, everybody says it's the homeowners who lose the most and the most directly. And that's absolutely true. But you can also find where there are enormous losses tied to either government agencies or insurance firms that are are associated directly with the most vulnerable communities. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch gears a little bit and give an example, which is more out of our work with urban road and green infrastructure design, where we are very focused in minority and low-income communities on how green infrastructure can provide health benefits that reduce childhood asthma incidents, which affect mm-hmm. low-income communities the most, and especially environmental justice communities. And what we've found is it's not just a household that loses equity or wealth or money. It also adds up when you go, for example, to hospitals and emergency room admission rates. And the same thing happens with insurance policies. So what we look for is who's losing money in aggregate. And how can you line up those folks so that you catch the most vulnerable communities as part of these financing strategies? rather than assuming they're poor so their losses aren't counted, or they're poor so the losses are counted by government. And so we actually spend an enormous amount of time paying attention in projects, whether it's Hoboken or Miami Beach, looking for when a homeowner isn't insured, or when they aren't covered through traditional safety nets, who is catching that loss when a whole community doesn't come back after a storm? And it's different in each place, but it's a big driver for what we do because a lot of the work that you see in environmental finance is very focused on how do you capture a future benefit? So something that 20 years from now, you'll be better off. Mm -hmm. We worry very little about that. And we tend to ask who's losing money today when these people aren't well off. And we rarely sit at the standard answer which is, oh, they're losing money. It's that household that suffers. There's always someone upstream who's willing to protect them in their own interest, whether it's the hospital, whether it's the insurance company, whether it's the government agency. So, for example, one of the projects that we worked on when I was at EPA was with the city of Rio in tandem with the city of Philadelphia. And this was well before the World Cup and the Olympics. But we found that many of the poorest slum communities in Rio that didn't have water infrastructure also had the worst landslide risk from rains. And what was fascinating is landslides are some of the costliest disasters to a city. 
And there's a budget for that. So if you can use the landslide budget to pay for providing clean water to poor communities, all of a sudden you've solved two problems more cheaply and reached people who were outside of the service of both of those agencies. And it was all public money. So that's what we look for. And there's no great simple answer to your question, but it's what drives what we do every day. And have you done or written or produced any reports about sort of who's who's still missing and who lost the most from Hurricane Katrina and the Lower Ninth Ward in New Orleans East, which are two demographically similar but dramatically different communities, which were really devastated and still haven't been able to rebound sufficiently? We haven't gone back to do any specific work and research on Hurricane Katrina, but we are working with cities like New Orleans now on plans for large-scale green infrastructure to provide protections to low-income communities moving forward. And a lot of what we do, you can find a number of different reports on our website, but because the projects we design are so long-term, it often takes a few years to get from design to construction. Mm -hmm. So we put out very few reports that are those kinds of historic retrospectives. But there's a tremendous amount of good work out there that's looking at these issues through a number of organizations in New Orleans around their greater New Orleans. Uh, I believe it's the Urban Waters Plan. So where can folks learn more about the amazing work that you and your colleagues are doing? You can find us online at refocuspartners.com. And we are also very happy to engage by email or by Twitter at Refocus Partners. So our next three questions are what we call the lightning round questions. So (laughs) first question, if you could implement one change or pick one leverage point that would lead to smarter, more sustainable and more equitable communities, what would it be? I would start with FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and reform the Stafford Act, which defines how we give disaster assistance but also really thoughtfully design a new program that FEMA is considering to create deductibles for disasters, to create deductible adjustments, kind of like safe driver discounts Mm -hmm. for really low-income communities to drive money to them to protect themselves. Excellent. Which one action could our listeners take, the average person, to help build a more equitable and sustainable future? Oh, wow. That's a tough one. I would encourage all of your listeners to attend at least one public meeting on a real project that's going to be built in their communities and put themselves in the shoes of those public officials who are presenting that project and think about how they can propose alternatives rather than just support or oppose projects. I think a lot of our local politics is too yes or no, and there isn't enough problem-solving that engages communities to really come to a thoughtful, compromise solution. And if you're successful in the work that you're doing, what would disaster preparedness and community resilience look like 30 years from now? Oh, wow. I think disaster preparedness and community resilience would look like a celebration of things that haven't happened. So one of the hardest things that I saw in my career in public service and also in my current work now as a social business was that when you do something where success is an invisible success. The storm hit, but the community wasn't flooded. We don't reward our public servants enough for making those decisions. You know, the first year you're applauded, the second year your budget goes away, and the third year your job goes away because you were successful. I think if we are successful in showing what Mike said so well is an avoided loss 
and can retell that story about how a community is safer, we will see lots more effective public and private money directed toward the most vulnerable communities and lifting everyone up from the bottom rather than just celebrating a ribbon cutting. Here, here. Could not ask for more. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for making this time. You are just doing some extraordinary work. Thank you all. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to you joining us next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.